All right. Well, as many of you know, um, uh, more importantly than being a pastor, uh, I'm a dad with four kids who, before I say anything else, you should know that I love dearly. Okay, I, I love being Graham, Avery, Abel, and Piper's dad. That said, I have now been a dad for uh, almost 10 years, and the joy that I have gained in that process is incalculable. I would not trade it for the world. However, there is something else that I have gained a lot of that I'm not as happy about. No, I'm not talking about weight, though I have gained some of that too. (laughs) I'm talking about junk. Junk. If you have a big family like me, you know what I'm talking about. Junk, just overflowing in every square foot of every storage space you have. Your closets, your cabinets, your garage, the drawers in your office, under the beds, in the attic. Just junk everywhere. Okay, What is all of it? I have no idea. Do we need most of it? Probably not. Do I have the time to systematically go through it and get rid of it like I would like to? Also, no, okay? I jokingly told some friends over Christmas that our kids got enough stuff from their grandparents on Christmas to fill another house. But sadly, the one thing we did not get was another house to put it all in, okay? Anyway, so I've developed something of a a secret obsession, I guess it's not secret now, uh, with a concept called minimalist living. You know what that is? Minimalists live by a principle that they only keep things that are necessary and truly sentimental, and so it allows them to keep a very clean, open living space. I long to be a minimalist. (laughs) I long to be a minimalist. Sometimes I just look at pictures of tiny houses online and try to convince Amy that when all of our kids move out, we should be minimalists and live in one. And she won't agree with me. So I'm probably just stuck with all the junk for the foreseeable future. But anyway, I, I do have a reason for bringing this up. I'm not just using the pulpit as a time for like my personal therapy and getting weird things off my chest. But thanks for that. The reason actually has something to do with Baptists and what it means to be Baptist. If you were to read any reputable book or article on what it means to be Baptist, up front... You'd read a lot of historical explanation of when true Baptists first emerged. There's some debate on that. But ultimately, when you finally got to the actual kind of bulleted list of Baptist characteristics, here's what you would find. Baptists are like denominational minimalists. Okay, Baptists are like denominational minimalists. Based on what the New Testament describes and prescribes, they determine what principles are the most clear and essential, and they prioritize and promote those things. Okay? Like when it comes to a Baptist doctrinal makeup, there's not a lot of weird denominational junk in there with confusing hierarchy structures and weird views on speaking in tongues or baptizing babies, which we'll talk about later, or, you know, hand motions with holy water, okay? Nothing like that. Baptists are, to use a term that I know is often used in a very uh, pejorative or uh, insulting way these days, Baptists are fundamentalists. 
They're fundamentalists in the original sense of the word. They unite around the clearest and most essential New Testament doctrines. Or to use a more biblical term, Baptists are very much like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who examine the scriptures daily in order to understand what was true. Baptists have been called people of the book which makes sense considering the fifth sola, sola scriptura, that says that scripture alone is the only authoritative source we believe is available and necessary for living a life of faith and godliness. I'm not going to claim that Baptists are a traditionless people because all faith practices have things that become their regularly practiced rituals, so to speak, but Baptists are not a tradition-heavy people. Does that make sense? Like, it's simple to be a Baptist. It's simple to be a Baptist. I would say that you could really boil it down into uh, five main things. Some may argue that there are more, and I would definitely say that you could go more in depth than I'm going to be able to this morning. But for the most part, the four things that we're going to talk about today and the fifth thing that we'll discuss next week to conclude are what distinguishes Baptists as Baptists. Now, uh, if you're caught up on the last two sermons on the five solas, what I uh, want you to see is that those Protestant distinctives really flow right into these Baptist distinctives, and each one of these flow logically one into the next, and then uh, next week, the final one is going to kind of be the capstone, all right? It's going to be what we uh, really are all about in a practical sense. So uh, to start out, who in here is in a community group? Anybody in a community group? Ring, ring, ring. Okay, yeah, cool, great, yep. Okay, so uh, who in here read through the end of Exodus along with their daily discipleship guide this week? Oof, okay, a lot less, not, not as many. Y'all should, hey, shameless plug, y'all should really use those. You should really use those. They are great, uh, super helpful. If you want to think critically about the Word of God for yourself, man, use those. And if for some reason you don't have access to those, and maybe you're not able to be part of a community, but you want to see those, like we'd love to help you, get you connected to those so that you can be reading through the Bible with us. But anyway, this week, when we got to Exodus chapter 40, it was talking about how the tabernacle of the Old Testament was really a continuation of the scriptural theme that God desires to dwell with his people. God desires to dwell with his people. And in order to show them that, when they would stop traveling, okay, a cloud would come and, and rest over the tabernacle, and it would fill the tabernacle as a sign of God's glorious presence with them. And I just, I just love this excerpt from day three of our reading. You see how good this really is if you're not reading it. So I just love this excerpt. It said, When God seems inconsequential to us through our apathy and our sin, his truth seems irrelevant. His grace appears dull. There is no fear of God in us because his judgment doesn't seem to carry any weight and his gospel doesn't sound very good. But when God descends, his word produces life. His grace is amazing. His awesomeness produces holiness and his good news makes the heart sing. To know the glory of God is to have your heart lit ablaze with a passion to know him 
and love him forever. <laughs> and this, man, that's such a good excerpt. This, I thought was just a perfect explanation of what it is like when we truly begin to grasp the message of the five solas, right? That even though we are all sinners who rebelled against God and who rightly deserved the wrath of his judgment and who had nothing to offer to God in exchange for our salvation, the message of the Bible tells us that we can be freely reconciled back to God instead and experience a fullness of life with him forever by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. And, okay, and that he doesn't only desire to save us from eternal death, he wants to redeem our purpose and identity in life right now as his image bearers who in Christ get the joy of pursuing his glory through our daily lives by learning from and leaning on his inerrant word, his all-sufficient word. Okay? I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you are a Christian, that should make you rejoice. man. <laughs> that should make you rejoice. Like, something should light up in you. You should be excited about what the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, means for you. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this kind of inward joy regarding the message of the gospel, I would argue, okay, this joy that we should have, is one of the main markers of the first Baptist distinctive that I'd like to mention this morning, which is simply this, a born-again hope in the gospel. A born-again hope in the gospel. Paul is saying in Romans 5 that for those who understand that they can stand justified before God and thus be at peace with God on the basis of Christ's merit, and that they can have this ongoing faith-based relationship with God on the grounds of His grace, secured for us by the perfect life, atoning death, and miraculous resurrection of His Son, Jesus, that produces eternal hope that leads to a rejoicing in God's glorious, loving, and merciful character that we see most clearly in Jesus. Okay? And this is what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born again. In Mosaic's vision documents, we articulate it this way. To, to have a born-again hope stemming from belief in the gospel means that you have received Jesus for who he really is. Lord, Savior, and the King of God's kingdom. Okay, We get this from what Jesus himself says about being born again in John chapter 3. Listen to this. <clears throat> in John chapter 3, uh, there's this famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, who was a Jewish leader at the time. And Jesus says to him, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. Or, come on, man. Like, no. Truly, truly, I say to you, (laughs) unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, Jesus is saying that when we're born again, it is this momentous event in our lives that is so, it's so significant. It's best described as a birth. Okay, It's described as a birth where something turns over in us for the first time, where his Holy Spirit awakens us, he regenerates us, and he opens our spiritual eyes to see Jesus for who he actually is as the Son of God, worthy of all of our trust as Savior, Lord, and King. So this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, they cannot even see the kingdom of God. He means, unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, you won't be able to see Jesus as the Christ. Okay, You won't be able to see that unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Colossians. He said, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him, and baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. More on that baptism language in just a minute, okay? But verse 13, listen to this. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. You who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. We see this all throughout the New Testament. To come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in the gospel is, look right at me, not merely an intellectual event that you facilitate. Okay, It's not an intellectual event that you facilitate. Salvation is not something you do for yourself. It's something that happens to you. Are you following me? Some people may argue with me on this and say, well, Tad, I decided to follow Jesus. I decided to follow Jesus, to which I would concede that they're right. They're right. But, that's a big but, that I think Scripture says that they decided to follow Jesus after His Holy Spirit gave them a new heart that was made alive by Him. Okay, That's how that happens, to be clear. So you can disagree with me on that if you want, but as capable as a person as you may be, and I don't doubt it that you are competent and capable, one thing you did not do for yourself 
was birth yourself. <laughs> you didn't birth yourself. If you think you did, let's talk, because that's weird. Anyway, not the first time, and not the second time either, if you've been born again, right? And this concept of new birth is incredibly, incredibly important for us as Baptists. Like, like none of the other Baptist distinctives that I'm going to tell you about this morning, none of them work. None of them work without first being born again to a living hope in the gospel. Okay. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, says it this way. He says, for Baptists, the necessity of conversion is the key to understanding the gospel and all of Scripture. The human race is divided between those who do not believe in Christ and those who do. Between the once-born and the twice-born. Between the rebels against God and those who have been conquered by the grace of Christ and belong to him forever. In regards to truth, friends, it doesn't get much more fundamental than that, does it? It doesn't get much more fundamental than that. If you consider yourself a person who cares about the truth, okay, this one must be above all of the other ones. Okay. That Jesus is Lord, Savior, God, and King. And in light of his resurrection, all humanity is now split into two camps. The spiritually dead and the born again. Okay. The spiritually dead and the spiritually alive in the hope of the gospel. I would encourage all of you to ponder this crucial truth. Think about this and maybe ask yourself the question, have I been born again? Have I been born again? And if so, when? Like, like what, what, maybe not the exact moment or hour, but, but where, was the, where was the turning point in your life when you truly received Jesus for who he says he is, as our Savior and Lord, and when you began living for him. Did that happen for you? If you're a Christian, it's important that you know that that has happened for you. Okay. All right. The second aspect, that's the first one, born again, hope in the gospel. The second aspect of being Baptist flows right out of that, uh, and it's how we get our name. Okay. It's called believer's baptism by immersion. Okay. Believer's baptism by Immersion. Now, if you're not super familiar with other Christian denominations, you may wonder why I'm calling it believer's baptism and why I'm tacking on that word immersion at the end. The reason is because, interesting as this may sound, though the Bible is laser clear that only born-again believers are to be baptized, and though Scripture doesn't ever promote another way of baptism other than by immersion, some denominations do it another way, okay? They have their reasons. I don't think they're very good, but anyway, that's why I'm Baptist, so <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Baptists who practice believer's baptism are also sometimes referred to as credo-baptists, okay? Credo-baptists, because the Latin word credo simply means I believe. So as credo-baptists, we believe 
that the only people who should be baptized are those who have made a conscious profession of faith. Okay? A conscious profession of faith. What that means, I want to be clear with you, that means they know they're being baptized, okay? So they're not, an, they're not an infant. And they know what it means to be baptized. So they're not a child who's too young to conceive of the moral and spiritual claims that are being made by the gospel, all right? So uh, in, in, in other words, okay, just say it plainly. We don't baptize kids whose parents just want them to be baptized, okay? But we, we don't do that because, I'll tell you why, not only is that pointless, because water baptism is a symbolic ordinance, okay? It doesn't confer any kind of special juju on you or something. It's not like something, some magic happens when, you, when that happens, when you get dunked, okay? But, but also, <laughs> it, it would be confusing, wouldn't it, to a child and their parents to think that they are a believer when maybe they're actually not, Right? Wouldn't that be confusing? Yeah. It's like, man, they're still acting really wicked. Like, (laughs) because they're not regenerate. Okay, sorry. I've heard countless stories of kids who got baptized at six years old in a vacation Bible school only to realize at 16 or 26 that they had no idea what was happening when they were being plunged underwater and being brought back up. They didn't know what it meant, right? I have friends who that happened to. It's very confusing for them to go through that, to think they were a Christian and then realized, oh, wait, no, I'm not. But now I am, right? Now, that's not to say, again, clarify again, that's not to say that kids can't be baptized, okay? They, they, They can. Kids can be baptized if they actually understand the gospel well enough to articulate it on their own and have the desire to be baptized because of a genuine turning away from sin and a conscious turning towards Christ in faith. Okay. Honestly, this is a discernment thing. Right? This is a discernment thing for each Christian family to navigate for themselves. In my family... I'm probably not going to baptize any of my kids until they're a little bit older, okay? And the reason is because I don't think they have anything to lose by waiting, and I think they have a significant amount to gain by being able to clearly understand and articulate what they're doing and why they're doing it when they actually, Lord willing, make a public profession of their faith, right? It's, it's, it's really important, actually to me, that my kids understand that, right? That it's a conscious profession of faith. All my kids will tell you right now that they are sinners. They will. We disciple them. We read the Bible to them. We help them. All my kids will tell you that they are sinners, with the exception of Piper. Okay, she's still in denial. She's two, okay? <laughs> and... They will all tell you so sweetly that they want to follow Jesus. Okay? They want to follow Jesus. Some of them might be genuine. Okay? Some of them might be genuine. But Amy and I are Christians. And so I just think that our kids are predisposed to say that they want to be Christians too. Right? You understand that if you have kids. 
Your kids want to please you. They want to make you happy. They want to be like you, right? And so that's what we think. What, what, what I'm really looking for is an unprompted conversation from them to me about their sinful brokenness and their need for a Savior. That's what I'm looking for, okay? Because in my experience, that's usually the first indication that someone is beginning to repent and believe the gospel, right? All right, and that's what baptism is all about. Baptism, based on the Bible, is a time when believers in Christ publicly display their repentance, faith, and newness of spiritual life. All right, so let's look at each one of these bullet points here for just a, just a second. First of all, baptism is for believers. As I said, some other denominations baptize children, even babies, and believing families, okay, uh, before they truly believe. This is called pedo-baptism, okay? It's called pedo-baptism. But if you simply look at Matthew 28, known as the Great Commission, in verse 19, Jesus, he says something here. He says, that we are to make disciples who we baptize, and he says to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which that's, just not, that's not just like a fancy kind of wordy way he's saying to baptize. Like, it actually means something. <laughs> that actually means something. It means to baptize them into the Christian faith. Right? Baptize them into an understanding of the Christian faith. Faith in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Which it's pretty difficult to baptize someone into the Christian faith if they're too young to understand what the Christian faith even is, isn't it? It's kind of hard to do that. Um, anyway, so as Baptists, we believe baptism is for born-again believers only. Okay, And we believe that their baptism is a time when they make a public profession of a few things. The first thing is repentance. Repentance. We actually sang about that in the song on baptism this morning. In Acts 2, verses 36 through 38, the apostle Peter had just finished up preaching the gospel to some Jews gathered for Pentecost, and he wraps up by saying this. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church, if you have never considered the wickedness of your own heart and your own sin, how your sin sent Jesus to the cross, if you've never thought about that and been pierced and cut to the heart over that reality, not only are you not a Baptist, you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. The reformer Martin Luther said that repentance is so central to Christianity. It's not just something we do once when we're saved, 
but thereafter our entire life becomes one of continual repentance. Okay? That daily, as we read the Word and meditate on the goodness of God, we are confronted. You ever feel confronted when you read the Bible? If you actually read the Bible, you're like, hey, this is kind of offensive to my conscience. Like, it's not telling me I'm a great person. <laughs> right? We're confronted with how we fall short of God's glory due to our sin, both our willful transgression and our unrecognized iniquity, or our, our propensity to disregard God without even recognizing it. And so when we are baptized, it is first and foremost a public recognition and confession that we are helplessly lost in our sin without a Savior, and so we are turning away. We are turning away from that sin, right? But we're not just turning away from our sin. We're also turning to Christ to save us, to rescue us, right? That said, the piece of turning to Christ, that is the public profession of our faith, all right, in Him. And so in Galatians 3, uh, 23 through 27, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, get this, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, right? We talked about this last year in our series in Colossians, but the language here, okay, is really important. The language of putting on Christ, of being in Christ, is the articulation of the doctrine of our union with Christ, okay? It's our union with Christ, and to get intricate, okay, that's really what faith does. Do you know that? That's what faith does. Faith lays hold of the gift of Christ's righteousness and receives it as one's own. Okay? And so in baptism, okay, in water baptism, we are professing that based on the law of God, we have no righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. But that we believe that Christ's righteousness, that he lived, died, and rose again to impute to us, his righteousness is sufficient for us. It's sufficient for us. And so we are putting it on. We're putting it on. And we are intending to live the rest of our lives in him and united to him, trusting in him, hoping in him, finding our sense of joy and rest in him. Okay, so as Baptists, we believe that baptism is a time when believers in Christ publicly display their repentance, their faith, and finally their newness of life. This is probably the one that you hear me say the most that baptism is symbolic. It's symbolic of our passing from death and into life. That's why we have this giant bathtub thing back here behind me called a baptismal. Okay, my kids always call it a baptismal. I love that. Anyway, <laughs> it's just more explanation that they don't understand it yet, okay? But uh, anyway, because the word baptize in Greek, baptizo, it literally means to dip, okay? It means to dip, which is why it's important for me 
to explicitly say that we believe in believer's baptism by immersion. By immersion. That's why they did that in the New Testament. That's, that's what they did in the New Testament. And that is literally what the word itself means because it's meant to be a picture. A picture of us dying to ourselves and being buried and being raised back up with Christ and newness of life. Okay, Romans 6 says that. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ, we just sang this, didn't we? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There it is, right there. If you're wondering where that comes from, there it is. We'll talk a little more about what that newness of life looks like towards the end of uh, the sermon in a few minutes. But do, do do you see how an understanding of the five solas leads to a born-again hope in the gospel, which leads to believers' baptism by immersion. Are you seeing how those things are connected? Okay, thank you, somebody. I I, I need you to see that because we're just going to keep flowing. That flow is important, and we're going to keep flowing just a little more. Okay, The the third Baptist distinctive that flows out of believers' baptism is called regenerate church membership. Regenerate church membership. Here's what that means, okay? Remember the word regenerate just means born again, right? Okay, regenerate means born again. And so as Baptists, we believe that baptism is not ordinarily something that should happen apart from the local church, but that when we are baptized into Christ in a spiritual sense, we're baptized into the body of Christ in a practical sense, okay? Because you will not find... Any concrete principles in the New Testament where we are supposed to regularly baptize free agent Christians, okay, or Christians at large, detached from a, a local body, okay? There, now, there is, some of you Bible scholars in here are like, there is that situation in Acts chapter 8, okay, with the Ethiopian eunuch. But if you even know what I'm talking about, I would argue that that's the exception, not the rule, Okay, because even at the very first reference to the church by Jesus himself, he ties it to the profession of faith. You know that? Or in, in, in other words, he makes it clear that when someone makes a profession of faith, they become part of the church. Right? Listen to this, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. It says, now when Jesus came into the, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who, uh, he said, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's talking about himself, okay? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So when Peter... When Peter confesses 
that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says that as we've already discussed okay, earlier, Peter didn't come up with that intellectually on his own. You see that Jesus said that? He didn't come up with that intellectually on his own, but God revealed it to him and gave him the faith to see it and believe it. All right. And so Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, which means on the solid foundation of that profession of faith. That's what's going to build the church. Okay. Or that's what the church is being built on. Faith in Jesus as the Christ. Okay. That's what builds the church. And then he says some important things, okay, about the authority and the autonomy of the local church. Now, I don't really have time to get into that as deeply as I would have liked, um, but I would just say, so that you know, as Baptists, okay, we believe that the local church congregation has the authority and the responsibility delegated to us by Christ himself to affirm or deny the salvation of those under their care. Okay? That's what that binding and loosing business is all about. There's more on that in Matthew 18 if you want to read on your own. Or if you'd like to go to our sermon archive on Vimeo, I have a sermon on church membership in a series called Church 101 where I explain that covenant membership, okay, covenant church membership is actually a really important tool in assurance of salvation. You know that? Church membership is actually a tool in assurance of salvation because in, in Baptist churches, the way it should work is when you become a member, it's a two-way street, okay? I know this is totally foreign in our culture, okay? But when you become a member of a church, it's a two-way street. It's not like you just saying like, I really like this church, and so I think I'll become a member, like you do with Sam's Club or something. Church is not Sam's Club, friend, okay? Like, church membership is a covenant agreement where you say, okay, you say, I believe this is a godly biblical church, and so I'd like to be an active participant in it, okay? And, follow me here, and when you say that, the church says it back to you, we believe that you are a genuine believer whose salvation we would vouch for based on your profession and your godly character. And so we accept, we accept your membership with us, okay? So do you see how that, how that works with assurance of salvation when you're, you become a member of a church, right? That means like, I believe David Snelling is a born-again believer, right? We have attested to that. We've heard his profession. We have seen his life. We've seen how he's growing in Christ. All of that's happening in his membership in this church. Do you see that? You see how important that is for believers to be a part of a local church? All right. Another place we see these principles outlined is 1 Corinthians 12. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. 
And no one can say, that is, no one is able to say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's saying a genuine profession of faith, like Peter made in Matthew 16, a genuine profession of faith is how you know that someone is a born-again believer. Okay, that's how you know. And he goes on to explain how when a group of believers united together around that profession forms, that is a church. Okay, that, that, that's a church. And they should all kind of behave like a, like a human body with lots of different parts that are all interconnected and working together for a common purpose. All right, verse 12 and 13 say it like this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Verse 27, if you jump down. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, okay? There are several other places in the New Testament that explain the same principle, but I think this should suffice in helping you to see the importance of regenerate church membership. And, and listen, just like we wouldn't ever want to baptize anyone who's not yet a believer, okay, it logically follows that we wouldn't want to make anyone a member of the church who's not yet a believer, okay? And I, I want to be really clear. Please, please hear me on this. Please hear me. I do not say this to be unkind. I do not say this to be unkind. But in fact, I say this to be loving, okay? I would argue it's actually a really unloving thing to allow unregenerate people to be members of the local church. It's unloving to do that, okay? First of all, it's unloving towards them, okay? Because it would be a willingness to, to give them a false assurance of salvation when they, in fact, have not demonstrated a true conversion. That's not loving, is it? No. Second of all, it would be unloving towards the rest of the church because it would be assimilating unbelievers who are not unified around the gospel into a family of believers who are striving to live life together under the banner of faith in Christ alone. That's not loving to the church to do that, right? It's not loving towards them, not loving towards the church. And third, it wouldn't be loving towards Christ himself, okay? To allow unregenerate people into local church membership, okay, it, it, it would be unloving towards Christ because essentially what it's doing is it's it's making a cheap estimation of his redemptive work on the cross, and it would be diluting the faithfulness and commitment of his body to his mission in the world. Okay? So it's a very unloving thing to invite non-believers into church membership. So as Baptists, we're committed to regenerate church membership, or to say it plainly, we are committed to only adding members to our congregation who are born again baptized believers, okay? I feel like it's getting kind of quiet in here around this topic. I don't know why that, but let me, so let me just end on this final note, okay? I want to make sure this is clear. I really, I really, really do. This does not mean 
that if you are not yet a believer, that you're not welcome here. Absolutely to the contrary, okay? If you are here with us and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, we are so glad you're here. We're so glad that you are here. And we hope that you feel welcome. We hope you feel loved and we hope you feel valued because you are not just by us, but by God himself, okay? And so you are welcome. You're welcome at any of our services. You're welcome at any of our fellowships. You're welcome at any of our groups. You're welcome to eat our food. You're welcome to drink our coffee. You're welcome to take advantage of any practical benefit that we may be able to offer to you. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, that's okay. Take advantage of what we have to offer you. You can have it all, okay? Because Jesus is a friend to sinners. And so are we. So are we, okay? Even if you have your doubts about Christianity, that's okay. Please hear from the pastor of this church. If you have your doubts about Christianity, this is a safe place for you. This is a safe place for you to listen and ask questions and not feel like you have to pretend to be someone you're not. Don't feel like you have to pretend to be someone that you're not or act like you believe when you don't actually believe yet. It's okay. Come as you are. You're welcome here. Jesus welcomes you, and so do we, okay? So, regenerate church membership, it just means that we are very exclusive with our membership role. It does not mean we're restrictive in our fellowship, not at all, okay? All right, glad that's clear now. We can, we can be happy again in here. All right, <laughs> let's, let's move on to our fourth and final Baptist distinctive that we'll talk about uh, this morning. It flows right out of regenerate church membership, and it's called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. It simply means that when you become a born-again believer in Christ, you don't need anyone to mediate your relationship with God. Okay? If you're a believer... You don't need someone to mediate between you and God. You don't need a middleman, okay? As a pastor, I have no more special access to God than anyone else in this room. I might be a little bit higher up on this stage, but I, <laughs> I'm not actually closer to him, okay? Like, like I, I don't have any more special access to God than anyone else in here. We are all on the same level. When you are baptized into Christ, you gain the same level of intimate 24-7 access to Christ. You gain that, okay? Just like me. In the Old Testament, you may know, there was an order of priests in the Jewish nation who acted as the mediators for God's people. But what we find out in the New Testament, particularly through books like Hebrews, is that those priests, those Old Testament priests, were themselves a foreshadowing of the perfect high priest who is to come. Who is who? Jesus. Way to give the Bible answer. It's always right. You always answer Jesus, right? Okay. And now, now that he has come... 
There is no barrier. There's no barrier between us and him. He is our sole mediator to God, but he himself also is God. <laughs> he himself also is God, which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, he says, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And get this, it gets better. It gets better. Not only do we not need, we don't any longer, we don't need a, a human priest to moderate our relationship with God. For those who are born again, we actually take on a priestly role ourselves. Do you know that? Man. We take on a priestly role ourselves, just like the Levitical priests of the Old Testament would help the Israelites to understand who God is based on his word, okay, and who would pray on behalf of God's people. This is now the same exact role that we have been given on behalf of the world around us. <laughs> Listen to how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This passage captures so much of the newness of life that we are called to live after we have been born again and baptized. Okay? Paul is saying, okay? He's saying if we are in Christ, okay? If we're in Christ, that is if we have placed our faith in Christ, and we are united to him as believers, then we have been made totally new creations. We've been made into new creations. Our, our, our old selves, our, our old lives have passed away, and now we don't just regard the world around us according to the flesh. We have had our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, and we now know the truth about Jesus, that he came to forgive people's sins and reconcile them back to God. This is the message of reconciliation that he's talking about. Paul says that God has entrusted that message to us. God has entrusted the gospel message to us. And that fact now gives us all, pastors and non-pastors alike, the gospel gives every believer a priestly role as an ambassador for Christ. Or just like the Old Testament priests would call God's people to repentance and faith in God, that's what we're called to do now. That's what we're called to do now. Except we do it with anyone who will listen to us. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, 
or co-workers. We are ambassadors from Christ who have been sent to tell them the amazing news of God's grace available to them in the finished work of Christ alone, by faith alone. This is the priesthood of all believers. It means that if you're born again and you're baptized and you're a church member, you should know, I'm not your priest, okay? (laughs) Don't put that on me. I am not your priest. Jesus is our high priest, and we're all priests together, okay, to the world around us. So, these four things, born-again hope in the gospel, believer's baptism by immersion, regenerate church membership, and the priesthood of all believers, right? Plus one final thing that we'll discuss next week. These are what make us Baptist. Is that what you thought? (laughs) Is that what you thought made us Baptist? That is what makes us Baptist and our corporate denominational identity. So like I said, we really are minimalists in that we just look to see what the New Testament describes and prescribes. We determine the principles that are the most clear and essential, and then we prioritize and promote those things. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. The kind who's able to simply look at the New Testament of Scripture and see the things that I am doing in my church are easily observable right there in the Word. Friends, that's how I pastor Mosaic. That's really a simple philosophy for me. I want to be able to look at the New Testament and see what Jesus says we should be doing and see what the apostles were instructing the the early church to be doing. And I want to do that. Don't you? Because if that's not what our faith is about, like we're just making stuff up, right? We're not here to make stuff up. The scripture has told us what to do and what to be. And so that's that's really what Baptists are. And so speaking of looking to Scripture for clear principles and doing those things. I would like for us to wrap up this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together. And the reason that we chose today okay, to do that is because the Lord's Supper is the second of two ordinances that Jesus gave to us to practice as his church. Okay? The first one is baptism. We already talked about that. Okay, We talked about that one. And we're only commanded to do that one one time. right? Only really need to be baptized one time. Usually at the beginning of our walk with Christ. Okay, But communion, or the Lord's Supper, is what Jesus says that born-again, baptized, regenerate church members should keep on doing. He tells us to keep on doing it after they're baptized, until he returns. Okay, just keep doing it. And here's what it is. It's like a corporate, symbolic time of reminder every time we do it together as to why we were baptized in the first place. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a reminder why we were baptized. A reminder of how Jesus' death 
was our substitutionary atonement. The bread represents how his body was broken for us. The juice represents how his blood was poured out for us on the cross as the only possible way that a perfect sacrifice could have been made for our sin. Okay? So, if you've been born again, baptized, and Mosaic is your church home, then we, we invite you to come to the Lord's table today in remembrance of who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> God, thank you so much for the gospel, for the good news that we can be restored and reconciled back to you. Not because of anything that we have done or anything that we could ever possibly do with our lives, but God, because of what Jesus alone has done for us. God, we, we, were, we confess, we, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, you came and you brought us back to life. You brought us back to life. We didn't do it. We didn't resuscitate ourselves. We didn't birth ourselves. You did that by your grace. And you gave us the faith that was necessary to believe that gospel message. And so I thank you for that gospel message. I pray that that gospel message would always be the center of everything we preach and teach and do as this local body of Christ. Father, thank you for this time now of remembrance when we get to come to your table. Remember what you did. Remember what you accomplished for us in your substitutionary death. And Lord, as we long, as we long for the day, not when we'll be minimalists, <laughs> but when we long for the day that you will return and you will take us home to be with you forever. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in your name.